think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now is your chance to... Uh, well, we've warned you. Welcome to Beer and a Movie, the podcast where we talk about two of the greatest art forms known to humanity, beer and movies, sometimes achieving outstanding pairings and other times giving ourselves the opportunity to watch the terrible taste of failure from our mouths. I am one of your co-hosts, Carlos Cooper, with me as always, Joe Hilliard and Dave Gurney. And we are here to do exactly what you think we are, and that is to drink a beer, talk about a movie, take a break, run it back again, um, and... This is the first all, installment. The first the installment first. of an all horror month. This is October. <laughs> we are doing nothing but horror for the rest of the month. This is we're going to kick it off proper uh, and talk about you know some two ground we're going old school we're going old school we're going old school varying degrees of old school there is quite a bit of time in between these two movies oh, sure, sure. but definitely both ground groundbreaking films in their own right iconic but yeah the glasses must be moistened david i'll let you talk about the beer you were the one who brought it to us yeah i've got a couple of questions you got a couple of questions what, what yeah questions? go ahead yeah go ahead oh start it up and then you'll you'll butt in Okay. Yeah, I'm going to butt in, believe it or not. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, this wasn't exactly planned on my part, but uh, a, a few days back, uh, I was at the local beer emporium and thinking, boy, isn't it sad that I am not going to even one Oktoberfest event this year. Normally, uh, you know, th- this time of year, late, late September, early October is all about Oktoberfest. Usually a couple events around town I'll go to. Um, so I decided to pick up a six-pack of a, an Oktoberfest beer, literally Oktoberfest beer, uh, from a German brewery, Polliner, and they are out of Munich, Germany. This is our first German beer on the podcast, and there's a reason. I, I bought this six-pack not even thinking we were going to do it for the, for the podcast, but uh, just, just to satisfy that itch that I had myself for an Oktoberfest beer. But then when I started watching our first movie this week or got a little ways into it, I realized, oh my gosh, how could we not drink an Oktoberfest beer while we're talking about it? And I won't spoil that too much. We'll, we'll get into the film in a moment. But right now, let's just get this beer open. It's a uh, it's a lager. It's their Oktoberfest beer. And it is uh, 6%. Yeah, 6% right on the button. It was actually one of the higher ABV Oktoberfest options. I was going to say that's a that's a lot higher than I was anticipating, and and a, and a noise we haven't heard in a while. Yeah. I, oh I, yeah. The bottle cap. Bottle. Yeah. A bottle cap rather than opening up a can. When we were all together, we'd do those bombers and share a bomber, and we open up a lot of bottles. But yeah. since we've been doing it isolated, it's been mostly uh, can. Leave it to David. Uh, yeah, he's got the Stein. He's got the Stein, a proper Stein, uh, not a mug a, being advertised as a Stein. I have a Stein uh, over there. I might do that for the second Shots beer. Fired. This is this is my. <laughs> 
here's my question, David or Carlos. Maybe one of y'all know the answer. It's not a 12 ounce bottle. It's an 11.2 ounce bottle. And mm-hmm. I was curious if that's some kind of I don't know the answer. Some kind of I'm thinking it's a German measurement. I think it's I think uh, this is probably like a 500 milliliter bottle or uh, something. Some some kind of milliliter that equals that. That equals that. I got you. That's that. That would it's, be my my hunch. So what you're it's, telling me is that over in Germany, their six pack is not really a, a good old fashioned twelve ounce American six pack. They're gonna they're getting shorted. Steal themselves a couple of ounces in the deal. Yeah, right. You hate to right. see it. Yeah, it it, equ- it equates roughly to three hundred thirty milliliters. So okay. I, I think it's just w- one of the more standard sizes that uh, would be available in Europe. And since we do not drink european beers all that often we're just not familiar with it which well, you know if we were doing this podcast 10 15 years ago it would be a radio show and uh <laughs> and and we would mostly be drinking imported beers i feel there was a time where the american yeah, craft right. beer scene yeah. was hev- heavy imported into imports and you know while we drink the fire iron from last week uh, like a hazy completely opaque pink beer full of fruit Put that up against the light. That is a clear lager. It's good. It looks it looks very refreshing. I'm looking forward to tackling the six ounce on this. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it you know, it, it's a shame that it's taken us this long to get to Germany on the podcast. If only because uh, you know, it, it's really one of those beer meccas. You know, I mean, along with with Belgium and and uh, UK and a few that really had beer culture much earlier and and are responsible for our beer culture in many ways right so um, especially especially the lager side yeah so the the film that we're pairing here or the film that we're doing for the first part of the episode is hey david hey david before before you get there i wanted to remind everyone in case they don't know if they're on our facebook page that we're doing 31 reviews of horror films one a day all october from our archive i think it's going to be more like 29 because we started a day or two oh, no. late didn't we carlos. no he's been he's been sharing these carlos come on yesterday's was zombie land one and two uh, i knocked out okay got him but, here, but here's my question i was going to ask you guys to take a guess of how many horror films short films documentaries we have reviewed on the show horror but before we do, a, a quick, I thought it might be fun, a quick round robin, is this horror? You this, with me? This movie? or You're going to name I'm, a movie, and we're going to say whether, in our opinion, it counts as a horror film. Real quick, I don't want to spend too much time. The Shape of Water. Not horror. Not horror, I agree. Glass. Mm, not horror. Not, not horror. I'm going to say not uh, horror as well. I'm, go- I'm going through Shyamalan now. Signs. I've never seen it, but based on... Uh, it's an alien. It's a, it's based a on, yeah. Based on my understanding of it, I would say horror. Oh, David? I, I think more sci-fi, but... Uh, but the, you can do there, sci-fi some, horror. There, you can. You can. I, th- I think it does skew a little towards the horror end of sci-fi. So I, I would be comfortable putting that in the horror okay. camp. Yeah. The Village? horror horror yeah the happening never seen it yeah it's it's horror it's horror okay grindhouse death proof quentin tarantino's not horror the car chase movie yeah i know I, yeah no i wouldn't classify that as horror comedy horror ready or not yes horror for sure 
Yeah. I'm okay. good with that. Two that are Joker. Not horror. Mm-hmm. No. Predator. Not horror. I might actually go horror with that one. It, I'm, it I'm has gonna, enough horror. I'm going to stand pretty firmly on the not horror for Predator. Okay, then we'll outvote him. Okay, so if I <laughs> add those five to our total of horror things we've reviewed, does anyone want to take a guess? We've done about 240 films. And how many of them could... Th- And you just asked some of the edge ones, the ones that you weren't sure uh, how to classify. I'm going to add five to my previous total after our conversation. I'll say 38. Okay, David? I will say 47. 56. Shit! That's way more than I thought. (laughs) We like horror. Now, I'm including Blue Velvet in that. You you see what I'm saying? There's there's Uh, some maybe here, but... Blue Velvet's on the fence. Which means that 31 horror films reviews every single day. We post one on Facebook, and maybe the three of us can even get on there and talk about it. We got plenty with so many leftovers. Speaking of which, I would just like to briefly take my victory lap over you fucking bozos over Cabin in the Woods because I no share I shared that on my Facebook page and it was you unanimously you praised unanimously praised down the board. I yeah, threw some I threw some heat on that conversation that you couldn't even uh, rebut. So I, I, <laughs> no, I, I'm I'm talking about when I shared it onto my personal page. Oh yeah, yeah. Everybody, oh this All movie right. was so good. A lot of people, I didn't think I was going to like it as much as I did, but this movie's so good. Uh, Jimmy Wilden being one of them, saying, yes, this movie's amazing. My friend Aaron was was the one that said, I didn't think I would like it, but it's great. Uh, my friend Chris, a local filmmaker, said, the third act of this movie should have changed studio movies forever, but we failed it as an audience to give it the steam that it needed. I would like to understand better what he meant by that comment, because... I, I would read as that well. And I thought, and I thought that sounds like the most like hyperbolic bullshit that I've heard in a long time. Yeah. <laughs> well, Carlos, Carlos is the kind of guy that's un- unfollowed himself into a bubble on social media. Just a bunch of <laughs> like-minded lackeys. He's, he's self-congratulating him. Anyway, we, we are having fun on our Facebook page in October, and we invite you to join. And it's an episode worth listening to, even even uh, even if Gathering I the woods. Film. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's totally. one of our more heated ones for sure. Yeah. Well, Josh DeLeon did did he got close to making my shit list for saying more like the cabin of Nah. Uh, Wait, which is that is that uh, Alamo Josh? Alamo though? Josh, yeah, yeah. yeah. He came yeah, down kind of hard on it. I respect Epi- that guy. <laughs> Epi- levels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That guy knows what he's talking about. Um, Episode eighty-one. Big friend of the show. Big friend of the all show. right, all right. We should move on, David. I rudely interrupted you. It's the first of four in a row horror episodes here at Beer and a Movie. Yeah, and and so when we were planning this month out and, and thinking, yeah, well, let, let's do it. Let's do all horror. I felt like we needed to start someplace. So I, I kind of lobbied. We had to go we- back to the beginning. Do an episode. Yeah, this I is mean, yeah, this is very much a David Gurney episode. It it is. I'll I'll, <laughs> I'll talk to it. So so you can you can write your hate mail to me and that and <laughs> but uh, oh, there's, there's I, nothing to hate here. I hope not. I hope not. Um, but you know, I wanted to go back to some classic horror film, or at least I think it was Joe said like kind of getting back to the roots, the, the, the Genesis, these important key films. Now there had been horror before this, but with the 1930s, the universal, the studio universal 
really sort of cemented itself as a studio known for its horror output. Um, and it did so initially with Dracula. Dracula came along, I think it was 1930. But very quickly thereafter, followed it up with their interpretation of another iconic movie monster, uh, Frankenstein. Well, n- the monster being the monster, but the film being Frankenstein, based on Mary Shelley's uh, classic novel. Um, it, and- it, worked, it worked the first time, a classic novel, yeah. into one of these uh, classic monster movies. Mm-hmm. Let's just pump them out. And they did at Universal for two decades. Right. So, so this is uh, the 1931 version of Frankenstein. It's been done other times um other it had been on done on film before in the silent era but you know here taking it into the sound era bringing in some new technology at the time um bringing in a lot of influence of german expressionism and films that had been made in germany in the silent era that had very stark kind of lighting and set design and makeup and and sort of bringing all these tools to it to create something that really became uh very successful financially, but also very iconic in terms of how we think about films uh, in the horror genre looking, at least for a few decades after that. And still, I think there's some case to be made. But before we get too much into the details, you know, just the basic story, it it seems almost silly. I I feel like everybody knows (laughs) this, but, you know, you have this, um, you know, (laughs) this scientist who is working on being able to bring life to things that are not living, right? Using dead tissue and bringing it back to life. And he's done it with animals. Um, he decides that he's going to do it with human body parts, uh, is, you know, his name is Frankenstein. He's very successful. He's able to do this, but then his creation does not act the way that he expects it to. And it causes problems. And there's your horror, right? So that that's the basic idea of the Frankenstein story. It's, you know, science going into areas that it has never gone before and tempting fate and, and, and sort of, uh, fooling with nature in ways that maybe have repercussions that, uh, that those who are, who are doing the messing uh, can't quite deal with. So, so the basic Frankenstein horror story, we've heard it, we, we know it from you know our childhood, but this 1931 version, what do we think of it? And also you have, you have to say it's a movie made for Americans, but it could not be set in America. It needed that other wor- uh, that other part of the world setting, that European setting, they chose Bavaria. So that the monster can be doing these you know, horrific acts that it eventually does, or maybe we can debate whether how horrific they are, um, in this setting of of and the costumes involved, and that that is a big like character almost of the movie is this Bavarian setting, mm-hmm. and the backdrops and the windmill and all of the ways that we can serve the film by setting it overseas. Right. Absolutely. I think, I think one thing that's interesting, and it, I mean, it's definitely not like something that is wholly unique to this film, but it does inform a lot of the mood and the tone of this film. But because you know this is like early Hollywood, like studio system type of stuff, and they're mostly shooting uh, on like sound stages and stuff like that. 
there's a certain visual language that necessarily evolves out of those limitations. And so like, especially it's, it struck me immediately in the graveyard scene at the beginning when they're like grave robbing the first body, um, which is how the film opens with this body being buried. And then Frankenstein and his accomplice who is not named Igor, it should be, it should be noted, uh, Fritz, uh, but it's shot from such a low angle and up and it just creates the, it adds to kind of what Joe's saying that otherworldliness, like you can't see any of the context around them. It's almost like they're perched atop this massive like mountain or hill or something. You just see the hill, the skeleton guy, Jesus on the cross, and then the sky behind him. And I don't know. It's just interesting how it, it was interesting to me watching it, how it looks and how that look is derived from certain limitations of Mm -hmm. trying to film something like this on a soundstage now this is this is the first time i've ever seen this movie oh Um, okay yeah i'd never seen it before and so i was even more interested in it because of that because i i really have not gone back and watched a lot of these universal monsters movies i know lon cheney and boris karloff like i know and, and vincent price like i'm aware of them but i don't have a ton of experience with their work Mm-hmm. Now that being said, it's so crazy watching this movie because there's so much in it that has lived far beyond the film itself. You know, mm-hmm. um, like as soon as the monster wakes up and is walking around, all I can see is Peter Boyle. <laughs> like right, they, yeah. Mel Brooks and Young Frankenstein got the look of the original monster down so well, and it. But it's good. It is good. Like this movie is. Yeah. A, this is a good movie. I think it's aged fairly well. If you're like not super averse to black and white, yeah. And you know, Joe mentioned in our chat earlier, like oh, from 1931 when a movie was 71 minutes long. I think that's something that it kind of benefits from is that there's no there's no frills in this really. No. It's like we're going to get in, stuff's going to happen, we're going to get you going and right. and so it's pretty entertaining from start to finish and there is a lot visually that is striking about it and mm-hmm. uh it's yeah, it's a very uh it's a very good film that is that is that is aged very well, but that has penetrated the zeitgeist in a way that seeing it now after having seen everything, I mean, it has been referenced so many times, like mm-hmm. an uncountable number of times. Like yeah, this beginning is, with the uh, "It's Alive" monologue. The scene. "It's Alive," yes, mm-hmm. seeing that, like where that originated from, and watching him mm-hmm. do it or whatever, it, like it's i don't know it's even kind of fun because you know it's coming like as soon as that happens you're like oh he's about to do it right he's about to do the thing and the way that it builds (laughs) or whatever you're just kind of waiting for him to erupt a little bit uh which he kind of does but not the to the extent that gene wilder does it obviously um but yeah i don't know it was just kind of fun watching it for that reason kind of having an idea and you know having an idea of where it's going to go and what it's going to do and you know, seeing certain conventions of horror maybe being established. Mm-hmm. You know, one of um, yeah, one of the cool. very first uh, Simpsons treehouses of horror was mm-hmm. uh, a retelling of the Raven, mm-hmm. and um, 
Lisa, when Bart complains that it's not scary, Lisa says, well, it was written in 1845. Maybe maybe people were easier to scare back then. <laughs> and then Bart says, and this is one that has kind of gone through my life. It's in my lexicon. I say this. Oh, yeah. Like when you look at Friday the 13th, part one, it's pretty tame by today's standards. Yeah. <laughs> but these 30s, 40s, 50s universal mo monster movies made gods out of men. In this case, Boris Karloff for his iconic portrayal of, of Frankenstein. And they're, revere they're revered, and I think accurately so, for their necessary part in the steps of evolution of not only American horror, but, I mean, these monsters, Dracula, Frankenstein, Wolfman, Creature from the Black Lagoon, I mean, those influences felt around the world. And this is one of those first, like, franchise things. Like, yeah. these movies redefined Hollywood for their cheapness, uh, their inexpensiveness, and their ability to get them turned around real quick, and the scripts don't have to be great. And maybe we'll talk about the evolution of director Frank Whale and the Frankenstein series in a second. But the set design here, I think, is incredible. The cemetery, the opening scenes, Carlos, that you mentioned, the gallows scene, the laboratory, of course, the electrical effects. And yes, they're on a soundstage with those painted sky backgrounds, but that's what it was. And they do a good job of it. It looks cool. Like it mm -hmm. adds, like, I feel like that adds it's, to it's the thing. Yeah. It's well, got, it's, I mean, it's got texture. Yeah. You, you can't watch these films and not think about the debt that uh, Tim Burton has to pay. And I mean, I guess that also goes back to the German expressionist filmmakers who James Whale, the director here, was referencing with his. Yeah, you know, and he's an he's a, he's an import from England that he was sure to have been influenced by those films. Right. Right. But, you know, the, the stuff like that, you know, even seems a little false or fake, right, you know, to, to our eyes, maybe. We've also seen it, you know, used in more contemporary films to good effect. I mean, it, mm -hmm. it gives it an, an otherworldly feel. Um, and, and if you're willing to go with it, I, I think it's... Uh, yeah. It's still stunning in its own way. Yeah. Even in Grand Budapest Hotel, Wes Anderson uses a lot of miniatures and stuff like that. Things that are like technologically primitive to what he could have done, especially with the budgets that he's afforded, I think. Right. And that gives that film a very specific look and a very specific feel. Uh, there also are a lot of um, a lot of sets. The set design in this movie, I guess I should say, is like very angular. Yeah. And like that gives this weird like creepy it's i mean the way the set is designed to me at least the way i interpret it i can't like obviously speak to their intentions as a very long time ago but the it seems like the sets are designed especially mostly in the laboratory windmill kind of scenes or whatever um to reflect the unnaturalness of the thing that has been created there um just these really hard sharp angles on a lot of it and that to me is i mean it's uh i feel like that's like kind of above and beyond what was expected at the time you know yeah um and but i think the expectations at the time are interesting because imagine us as film going audience now right we've seen fast and the furious what are they going to give us with Hobbs and Shaw? Well, back right. then it was, we had seen Dracula. Right. This is the follow-up to the mass American movie-going audience to the Universal Picture, uh, I'm sorry, Classic Monster series, although this is only the second in the series. Yeah. 
there's some real like contextual 1931 macabre here uh-huh that seems tame by today's standards, but back then, showing those brains in the jars, and yes, you have to ignore the big stickers on the brain jars, that, you know, (laughs) perfectly lampooned and young Frankenstein. But uh, the the idea of digging up a grave, the idea of the the gallows scene, a man hanging from a Yeah, Yeah, just pulling him down from there. The... The visual of that monster, when we have never seen anything like it before, the 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 scars on the arm, the hand, the wrist, where yeah. we are to have imagined that he stitched together the hand of human A to the arm of human B. I mean, that probably did freak out the black oh, yeah. and white movie well, going and- on against in 1931. I mean, the, the the lab, right? I mean, with all of the electrical sparks and like the um, the various sort of electrical equipment that's that's going off there during sure. the thunderstorm. And sure. I mean, that it seems trite to us now because we've seen so many things either making fun of it through like a young Frankenstein or paying homage to it or, you know, like the mad scientist lab. It's like almost uh, at this point it's turned into camp. I mean, if you were to set up a mad scientist laboratory and you had those, you know, arcing electrical sparks and all that, it would seem, you know, but you're paying homage to it. Here, this was the first time people had seen that, right? This yeah. is the first time people oh, had you seen you got to give them big props for yeah. creating what became this lampoon. Iconic, right. Yeah, I, thank it, you. Iconic's a better word. It, well, it's, and, it's, and it's very funny. I mean, you, you say, like, this is the first time you've seen it. And if you look at other renderings of Frankenstein's monster from before this, they had very different kinds of looks to them. Like if you look up what the 1910 film Frankenstein monster looked like, it's weird. It almost looks like more like the Scarecrow from The Wizard of Oz than yeah. what Horace Carlock it's, like. it's not correct. This is the correct. <laughs> they, they nailed a look in this that has been repeated over and over and over again. And I and I think for time immemorial it will probably always be what people think of when they think of frankenstein's monster is that large lumbering you know guy with the stitched together body parts and the, the hair on head yeah, yeah. And it just and the, and the bolts in the, the neck the on. broad yeah. sh- super broad right. sharp yeah. really Big sharp shoes, shoulders yeah yeah, yeah. And, I, I feel go ahead to call us sorry uh, i just looked it up and boris Karloff was only 5'11 which is not very tall for. Well, he wore those big Frankenstein he had boots. Platforms. I can, I yeah, can, he had I can see it in the boots, but even still, like that's a lot to make up, you know, for yeah. what is supposed to be like a seven foot tall monster or whatever. Fair enough. Yeah. So, hey, look, I feel like the movie ultimately is like begging us to talk about the theme of it. Sure. Um, you know, uh, the idea that there's an overt physiological difference between a criminal mind and a quote-unquote <laughs> quote normal mind. Yeah. Um, well, or man as God, the most censored part of the film around the world, was yeah. any kind of sacrilegious notion of, I feel like what it's like to be God. That was yeah. taken out in certain states of the country as the... Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fuck them. Okay. <laughs> and, uh well, but, but it is. I mean, like even even if you do, you don't buy into you know the the God thing. I mean, it is somebody playing with 
uh, you know, aspect of the natural world that that humans just. I mean, we still we don't reanimate dead things. I mean, that's not something even well, whatever you guys do on the weekends. Very different <laughs> from what I do. Apparently, almost, almost two centuries on from when Shelley was writing about this, you know, this isn't something that we've achieved. This isn't a, David, a stem cells. Let's make this episode more controversial than cuties. <laughs> <laughs> this is really a treatise in favor, or no, against stem cell research. Oh my god. I hope well, only if you put a chemical only if you put a criminal brain inside the monster I mean, that was the critical flaw here. I mean stem cells were used to treat Trump who has a criminal brain So okay, 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 okay. <laughs> But you know one of, one of the things about th this interpretation <laughs> on film One of the things about this interpretation of this story on film that it actually has a little bit more sympathy for the monster than I think then certainly they set out to. I mean, the story is that they were working initially from a script with a different director at, at the helm that was going to have the monster be a much more uh, clear killer. Just like w once he was brought to life, start just smashing everybody and killing well, that's, everybody. That's, that's the modern story, certainly. A right. villain that is a villain that does villainous things. Right. That's not what this monster is. But no, this monster, if anything, starts off as very innocent and very um, childlike and seems to just you know, I mean, what what it wants, we don't know. It's not able to articulate, but it's you know, it it's there. It's it's more <laughs> scared by the fire, right? <laughs> that that's a problem. Um, but then you know, playing the game with the girl doesn't quite understand the logistics of the game. Yeah, and he thinks she's her. gonna flow. Actually, right? Exactly. Well, we but all. The, hey, but ultimately, <laughs> ultimately, with Frankenstein as God, that monster he didn't ask to be here. No. And he, he didn't ask to look this way. I tell my mom that every year on my birthday. When, you didn't ask to When be? she is lamenting about <laughs> oh how long God. she spent in labor, I always no, look at her. Look I way, always man. look at her and I say, I didn't ask for this. No one, I did not consent to this. Wow, this episode got a lot darker than I was anticipating. <laughs> and, and ultimately, though, the monster is misjudged by the society that created him. That's what's and the that's the interesting part here. Yeah, I, I mean, it is. It's a, it, when you really start digging into it, it's a really complicated kind of situation where it's like, what are the responsibilities of the creator towards his creation? What are the responsibilities of his creation to the, the world that? is surrounding him that he wasn't asked to be brought into. Um, but, but, you know, I'm going to drop a bombshell on y'all as okay. much, as much as I tell you that it has a necessary place in the evolution of American horror cinema and world horror cinema. This is my least favorite easily of the universal monster movies. I don't think this is a very good movie. See, I, you know, what? even if you, you're saying, even with the sequels, you're, are you saying like the first string, no, this film, 40, it's 44 minutes of build up to moment, the, how it got happened. And, let's go help him and he needs some help or maybe he doesn't need help and convincing this person to go on and this person to come to Bavaria and yada, yada, yada. It's not for, it's 44 minutes into a 110 minute movie before the monster gets loose and things start really happening. A 71 minute movie, not 110. Yeah. But oh, I'm sorry, an hour 10, my bad. You're I right. think that, I think this is, and I don't think that it's close. The most iconic universal monster movie of the lot. Mm-hmm. Prob probably from a visual standpoint, yeah. Yeah. And and like 
and narrative wise too i think yeah i mean i i don't know i i, I don't I, this definitely isn't look this is my my favorite universal horror movie maybe oh, that's fantastic. maybe only uh second to bride of frankenstein but it oh, seems yeah. like a little bit of a stretch to to go jump to the the sequel to the original october uh, 2021 gonna, there you go <laughs> we'll look at sequels next next time only um, sequel only horror I, sequels all month <laughs> <laughs> we could do it easily we could uh yeah i mean Halloween for me four. in part because of its visual impact i mean that it's just undeniable like you you just I, it's hard for me to imagine what horror movies throughout the 20th century would have looked like if you hadn't had frankenstein do what it did i give um, you that but, i give you that but on top of that i find this the frankenstein's the Frankenstein story, very compelling. And honestly, I have not seen a film version of it that I like any more than this. I, I think that this strips yeah. it down to its basics. There's a little bit of hamminess in the acting. I'll give you that. Although I kind of love Baron Frankenstein, how he cracks himself up at everything he says. Like <laughs> Just like every line he delivers ends with, <laughs> That hat he's wearing when we first see him is... I mean, they're still making the transition from theater to film, and you see it all over this movie, and that's and that's completely acceptable given the context. Nineteen thirty-one. But even with that, like, I just find it to be an entertaining film. Watching this again, I enjoyed it, uh, you know, immensely. It it is one of those movies, and I've never done this, but I would love to see it on the big screen someday. I think it would be fun to see in a theater. I'd attend Um, that. And, uh, and and enjoy it with an audience in, in, in a dark room like that. But I, I just think this is, as far if you're going to go back to one of those classic universal monster movie horror films, I, I think this this or Dracula would probably be where I'd point most people. And it kind of depends. Are you are you somebody who loves the vampire stuff? Because I know people who go nuts over the vampire. Then you should see that original. If if you love if you love more just horror and the in the the vibe and the look. I think Frankenstein is is for you. I've never oh, seen it? I've never seen the original Dracula or the Mummy, or maybe any of them. Well, that that that's, and that that's, and that makes sense. That makes sense to me. But I but yeah, I, sure. but I think the reason that I feel, even though having not seen them, strongly about Frankenstein being the most iconic is kind of like what you said, David. Nobody has made a better Frankenstein movie than this, but there have been better vampire movies made. Yeah, you know, there even there have definitely been better mummy movies made. Shouts out Brendan Fraser, the OG, <laughs> the homie. Uh, I, I'm also going to suggest that a good companion to this movie would have been Ed Wood, and I'm thinking of um, Martin Landau as Bella Lugosi's rant against Boris Karloff in Frankenstein. Sure. So I'm yeah. going to I'm going to pitch that we put on our list a Plan Nine slash Ed Wood episode sometime in our life that would be fun i would i would definitely do that Uh, the last thing i'll say about this movie is it may it didn't really make me want to reread the book because i remember reading it and loving it it was i read it in high school we also read dracula and i vastly preferred frankenstein i found it incredibly entertaining he kills the wife doesn't he the monster in the book I think so. Um, I, I've never read it, to be honest. Oh, really? And, yeah. I mean, it's been, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, like 10 years since I've read it. But I, that was one thing I remember, and I was kind of expecting it to happen in the film, and it didn't. 
Um, but it made that scene a little more tense for, for I, I don't know, I guess you would think that she was going to die no matter what, um, unless you had seen the film before. But I also kind of, I, I also remember the vampire, uh, vampire, the monster being a very sympathetic character in the novel as well. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so I don't know. After I finish Dune, that's probably next. Right on. Well, it, if it, it seemed like we had a good productive discussion here. We we enjoyed uh, the festivities almost as much as those uh, wedding goers uh, at the uh, the Frankenstein wedding in, in in the film, where they were enjoying their beer while all of the folks in the uh, the estate were drinking uh, wine. Right, the fine wine that she had kept. But we're we're part of the proletariat here, right? We're, yes, we're we are. We're a podcast of the people, by the people, for the people. That's right. So we were drinking one of those fine Bavarian lagers right along with them. What do we think about this Bavarian lager that we just enjoyed? Is Polliner um, in Germany like a Budweiser? I think they have more respect and more history it, with their beer than but then again, like, but, like the everyday twelve pack. Like is the it there? Germer. I think it is. I think it's. I think it along with like Wahenstefaner and uh, you know what? There's a couple other brands that you could always count on being on the shelves. I bet it's it's a. I'm sure an omnipresent brand. I wanted to know how much snobbery I should put into it. No, <laughs> as the uninitiated. German Oktoberfest drinker. That clear, the, the clear consistency of that lager and the and the aroma that it had. I enjoyed the hell out of this experience. This was a delicious beer. Six percent. It can't. It's not water, Carlos. Nope. Right. I thought this Unlike was a fantastic. some lagers that you can find that are. It was a great or whatever the German purity law thing. Reinheitsgebot. And you you bought the, you bought this locally. Yes, absolutely. I'm going to go pick up a six-pack. Pick up the Polliner Oktoberfest for October. It's great. It's exciting. Yeah, I, I also very much liked it. It it kind of reminds me of, like, when I when I smell it and then I taste it, to me, in my mind, as, like, a 19- or 20-year-old, like, that's what beer tasted like, you know? But this is a good version of it. Like, the best version of like what I just considered to be a standard beer when I was younger. Yeah. And I think it's a very, very excellent example that you can have just a super simple, clean, crisp, no frills kind of beer that is, that also has flavor that is very enjoyable to drink that still has a good mouthfeel, um, for what it is and everything like that. And that, you know, other some other beers of that particular ilk pale in comparison i think mm -hmm. whenever you say oktoberfest from an american brewer are you likely to see a lager or can they throw an ale in there as well it's usually a lager i think they're mostly lagers although yeah. some some are darker you know they have the marsins uh marsins yeah it's a little darker that tend to have darker malts uh, as their base. Th this one, they're using uh, kind of a mix of a Pilsner malt with a Munich malt. And so I think it ha it's it's a little darker than just your straight up um, light lager, but not, not by much. I mean, I mean, it's a little, it's got a little bit of a, a sweetness to it, but not too much. Yeah. Um, nice, you know, subtle hop quality. 
it's it, it's fun sometimes just to go back to that you know really foundational bedrock kind of style like a beer again they've been brewing since 1634 yeah this is a you know this is a beer and, I, and i'm not saying this recipe goes back that that far but a beer like this was being drank by people hundreds of years ago and uh and quenching their thirst and here it is quenching our thirst right now that's it's it's it seems kind of tame by today's standards (laughs) (laughs) got him good connection there man got him i can't wait to talk about our second film me either i'm i'm excited uh it it should be fun another iconic film in its own right one that uh definitely made its imprint on horror as a genre in the 20th century and uh, we will dive into that when we get back from the break. And we're back. Uh, and we're back. Oh no 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 no! I'm gonna trick you. Oh come you. on, take I'm one. I'm gonna trick you. <laughs> I have to get it in before you know it's coming. Ooh. Oh, yeah, I'll do it. Give it to me. Oh, it's too late now. No, I'm ready. No, it's, we already started. And, <laughs> all right. yeah, I mean, and, we, and we are back. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. All right, well, yeah, we're back. Second half of the and episode. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, you know what the vibes are. We're doing the damn thing. Um, we got to crack another beer. We sure do. This, this is going to be um, at this point now. I feel like our Black is Beautiful episode is is just one of legend and mythos uh, because we, we haven't actually that. released it yet. We, we should release that as a Patreon exclusive. It, it'll, yeah, I think I think we'll get it out there one week as a it'll, Patreon. It'll happen. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We did do one though, um, but we are going to crack open a Black is Beautiful beer now. If you are not aware of what this is, what fucking rock have you been living under? Um, <laughs> but Weathered Souls, Marcus Baskerville over there, the head brewer, created this initiative to uh, drum up some support and you know some donations for charities that support justice and equality for people of color. Um, at this point, we're well over a thousand breweries participating. A dozen or two different countries. Um, There have been several in our hometown that have participated, uh, some that have not. Um, But we've tried B&J's Rebel Toad, Lorelei. They all did Black is Beautiful beers. Um, Back at episode 103, remember when number one fan Kyle Ferguson sent us some beers, but mm -hmm. David didn't get to drink that one because – he dra- he cracked open a nine oh three black is beautiful. Back oh, that's right. That's, that's right. right. That's right. That's right. I did jump in with that. You're right. So th- so this one's from Fremont Fremont Brewing out of uh, Seattle, Washington. We had them back on episode eighty one, where I was super right about Cabin in the Woods, and Joe and David were super wrong. Um, and uh, so we're gonna crack this one open. Um, the way that this works is that uh, Marcus created a recipe for a stout. That, by his estimation, if, you know, with the ingredients and the brew time called for would equate to about a 10% stout. Um, it, it, it has varied, as we've noticed, from brewery to brewery. We've seen them as low as 8%. Um, 
maybe some a little higher than 10, like 10, five. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, this one is coming in at 9% and, uh, we'll give it a go and see, uh, see how this is tasting. Yeah. I'm getting a lot of head on this one. I'll tell I you am, that. Yeah, I am too, but it smells, it's, but that head smells delicious. Yeah. I'm excited to, uh, to get to sip on that. Um, so yeah, we thought uh, black is beautiful. You know, this week we're we're going we're going back into film uh, history and looking at these earlier instances of horror in uh, the early and now we're moving more to the mid twentieth century. But both are some of the few black and white films that we've done for the podcast. I, I mean, we've we've had a handful of others, but uh, but it's pretty unusual for us to do two black and white films so you know thinking here you know black is beautiful well black and white is beautiful too and uh, it's it's nice to uh to revisit that kind of uh shot composition and 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 the kind of balance that you might get in a film like that where you know here in the first case 1931 color color processes were were pretty rare and it was and it wasn't a whole lot of films that were doing it but for this second film 1960 Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, color was definitely uh, coming to dominate. And in fact, Hitchcock had made plenty of films throughout the 1950s that were using color. Some, at least one that we've looked at. Is <laughs> the, the birds podcast. correct? Right? No, it was Rear Window uh, Rear and Vertigo back in yes. episode 85. I mean, the, the Hitchcock's a master of the color palette. The story why he went black and white on this is actually really interesting. Yeah. Would, would you care to uh, share, John? Well, he wanted to make a movie, his next movie, after another movie kind of fell apart in pre-production because Catherine Hepburn had to drop out of the film. So he wanted to do this book called Psycho. And mm-hmm. it was so salacious, the material so violent and controversial that the studio wouldn't back him until he agreed to do it at a very low budget with his television crew instead of his film crew to keep the prices and costs down. All the stars took a cut. The only person that didn't take a cut was the composer. And Hitchcock said, screw it. I got to have you as the composer on this thing. And of course the score is incredible. Yes. Bernard Herman. Yeah. Uh, I didn't say his name. Sorry. What, one of the, one of the most I mean, in terms of, uh, you know, film composers in general, one of the most legendary, but this score in particular, probably right up there. I mean, it's got to be one of his most recognizable, right? I mean, you, you can hear various uh, various uh, pieces of the score that he's done here, especially the shower scene score, the murder. Yeah, um, it's, it's one of those, like, urban legendy. I looked it up. It's supposedly a true story where Hitchcock wanted that to be silent. Yeah, the shower scene and then Herman said well why don't we just listen why don't we just watch it with the score that I've created for it and Hitchcock said yes indeed it does contribute to the film so we'll leave it in yeah so yes Joe what you said lines up with what what I've always heard you know this this was a project that Hitchcock wanted to do seemed almost like strangely driven to do despite the fact that he wasn't getting a lot of support from the studio and it was something that that uh, others didn't seem to understand why he would want to do a film like this um, because it really did push him from these kind of technicolor um, you know uh, star-studded spectacles that he had been doing 
leading up to this into this sort of grittier, more salacious territory, right, of just outright murder um, and uh, and 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 based loosely, I mean, or at least inspired by the story of a of an actual killer in Wisconsin, Ed Gain, and uh, and and his seeming uh, obsession with his own mother. And, and Ed, Ed Gain seems to be the source material for most of our like finest serial killer films. Well, it's yeah. Well, it's such a strange story. And I hear that that was also one of the source materials for Silence of the Lambs. I mean, his yeah. he was the gift that kept on giving. Well, yes. He he was whenever you think of and Psycho doesn't quite get into it as deeply, but yes, whenever you think of uh, people killing and using their victims' body parts for various things and you know making masks and uh, suits and whatnot out of them, that's Ed Gain. You have him to thank for that. Um, but but this one taking a, you know that fragment of the the son uh, mother relationship and it gone awry as as kind of the seed, but but doing it in this very interesting way. I mean, where you begin the story seeming to focus on this woman and her um, rash decision to steal some money and leave town with it very quickly to, to, you know, supposedly wanting to go get married to her boyfriend and, you know, needing to settle some debts. So this was like a perfect opportunity. She has this money fall into her lap and she, she decides to leave town and, you know, seeming to be maybe a story that's building towards maybe, uh, you know, this criminal case, this, you know, people tracking her down, which it does end up becoming, but, she doesn't really make it through the film, right? Um, so, so almost this bait and switch. Now, if you've read the book, apparently, um, you would know already that that wasn't going to happen. But for moviegoers who hadn't generally seen this, this was quite a profound surprise, right? This was a, a shock kind of film where you go in thinking, oh, this is Janet Lee starring, who was a fairly, you know, she wasn't a Cary Grant star, but she was up there. And I'm going to go see the Janet Lee film, and Janet Lee only makes it through about 40 minutes of this. Yeah, which I mean is the best example of hit, maybe in his entire career, of Hitchcock completely fucking with the audience. I mean, completely defying expectations. At that point, you have no protagonist. Mm-hmm. So the protagonist gets shifted to the only other character that makes any sense at all, given what the film goer knows at that time, which is that Norman Bates is the product of a horrible mother that we believe to be alive up in the house. Right. So by shifting your protagonist to the only other character we know, Norman Bates, and then learning what we learn later about Norman Bates, Hitchcock just Hitchcock just messes with us for a good two hours. Mm-hmm. And it's beautiful and wonderful. And I'm a <laughs> so whenever, uh, so before I saw this movie, the only like point of reference for it I had, or they really, the only thing I knew about it was from the VH one program. I love the sixties and that they, was the thing they did from like, I think they did from fifties, maybe sixties all the way through like whatever the current era was when they were making I think in 2010 they did I Love the 2000s or something. It was like, bitch, that okay. shit just ended. Um, but, and I remember hearing them talk about this huge star in Janet Lee that was cast in this film and that dies like way earlier than anyone in the audience was expecting. And that, 
expectancy violation creating this air of mystery and suspense and like, wait, what the fuck is going on? I don't think this movie has a ton of rewatch value. Wow. Wow. Really? Yeah. Oh my god. I'm gonna I'm gonna push mute for a few minutes, y'all. Go ahead. <laughs> so much of what is happening in this movie revolves around like the mystery of the film, uh, which is that Norman Bates is his mother and that his mother is dead and doesn't exist and they, you know, all that kind of thing. He's the one doing the killing. And to me, when you know that intellectually i i really i really do appreciate the DIY, the diy like ethos that went into this where he was just like fuck you guys i'm making the movie that i want to make everyone mm-hmm. can get fucked and he i read that he um opted out of his $250,000 director's fee in exchange for a stake in the film, which was clearly way more than $250,000. So studio system get fucked. Alfred Hitchcock on the come up. Uh, (laughs) Securing the bag. I'm all about a man getting his bag. Um, And like... Well, you you still... You collect the Hitchcock ones, right? Yes. (laughs) And, uh, you know... The cinematography is great. Like the use of black and white is great. Like the movie looks great. The performances are good. The score is fucking incredible. And intellectually, I understand all of those things and I can appreciate it and admire it. But as far as sitting down and a movie holding my full undivided attention for the entirety of its runtime, this movie can't really do that anymore. Wow. So what you're what you're saying is once you know the twist, once you know that Bruce Willis is dead, you're not watching it with as interested an eye as the first time when the twist may have been a little more, you know, cathartic yeah. for the film going. And I mean, because yeah. because oh. because also the the movie itself. I mean, at least in my reading. Oh, by of the it, way, spoiler alert: Bruce Willis being dead. Oh yeah, um, you know, and it's it's a it's a victim of this movie is a victim of its like innovation to a certain degree because it was like one of the first, if not like the first big movie to have some crazy M Night Shyamalan ding dong twist like this at the end of it. You know, like this wasn't a thing that was really happening. It wasn't like something that everybody was like, could articulate as like, Oh, it's it's like an M Night Shyamalan movie. Like we didn't have that. There wasn't anybody doing that before this. And so because of that, the twist in and of itself is enough to make this movie work. It's enough to sell this movie. It's enough that when a certain group of people go to see it and they tell their friends that haven't seen it, wait, you haven't seen it? Oh, the end is crazy. Like, you have to go see it. The end is so fucked up. Like, blah, 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 blah. Uh, And then people are going to get excited and go see it or whatever. And, you know, we don't really have that as much anymore. And then also because of what this movie did and established that, oh, yeah, you could construct this whole thing and have this crazy twist at the end of it and really blow people's minds with how you finesse a story. I think because of that, directors at a certain point were like, okay, now it's not really as much to have the twist. Let's try to like pepper in stuff that hints at it and see who can figure it out and like, you know, add in these a more rich, layered, like depth of storytelling 
So whereas some movies that came after this that have a twist ending have rewatch value because you spine things in it that so clearly were telling you what was going to happen, but you didn't catch the first time. And that's fun and interesting to like pick up on those things you didn't pick up the first time and stuff like that. Psycho doesn't have that. It has atmosphere. It has mood. It has tension. It has all of that kind of stuff to it, which is fun and it's cool, but it's not enough really for me to be like i'm sitting down and i am watching this movie and that is all i'm doing is watching this movie i'm gonna put this into our party movie category huh wow that's i mean that that is a position i'm 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 sympathetic i understand where you're coming from the movie doesn't work the way it does the first time after you've seen it i mean it it is the kind of movie that is designed to deliver a specific kind of shocking experience the first time. And if you see it that way, I I, I think I could even agree. That's probably going to be the most sort of visceral viewing of the film you're ever going to have. However, I think this film has great rewatchability for a lot of reasons. And, and actually relating very much back to what we were talking about in the first half of the episode. It's iconic. Some of the stuff that goes on here is just, uh, it's impossible to think about the films that came later without thinking about this film, right? I think the score that we've already talked about is just such an effective, watching it again, I'm never not feeling that score. You know, when, when I'm hearing it, even, and I'm not even just talking the shower scene, I'm talking all of it, you know, the, all of it, front to back. It's it's just he, Herman and Hitchcock wor- working together are playing me like a fiddle when I watch that film because I'm just getting pulled along emotionally in just the way they want me to be. The shower scene, the fact that we can refer to a scene in a film, the shower scene, you could say that to almost anybody and they're going to know exactly the film you're talking about and why you're talking about that. There David, is no David. other... Any I can't even think of another scene like that. Anytime you've ever fake stabbed someone with a tube of toothpaste or something, you go, he, he, he. I mean, <laughs> it doesn't get more iconic yeah. than that, that scene. But what is it, like 57 cuts in three minutes? I mean, you know, there's all kinds of, you know. Well, there was the, the documentary that was made about it that uh, breaks it at 78.52, right? It's like yeah. 78, is it cuts and then 52 setups? Or, yeah, anyway. Um well, you can't just say anyway. I mean, that scene is a semester of a film class. If you well, yeah. filmed it, well, in in seven in seven days of filming for one scene. I mean, you, so, you never you never see the piercing of flesh. And I you never, right. Yeah, I understand some of that is esoteric, and it's only something that's going to interest you on sort of an intellectual, not a gut level. And so again, they call yeah. they call that the Hilliard level. Oh, okay. <laughs> the, the the gut level or the intellectual level? Which one? Oh, fuck off, dude. No, I'm just curious. I don't. I didn't understand now which you, one. Now you're just being mean. Oh hey, no! It's corona. it's corona, and I am in a beer podcast. I wear this thing with pride. We were. Hey, we. we yeah. No, none of we, us thought we, that. Joke. We all do. None of us thought that. Um, no, but the, but the bottom line is I, I get where you're coming from, Carlos. I understand how that first time watching it, you're never going to be able to recreate. However, I I just think that this is a film that I'll never – I mean, watching it again, I wasn't tired of it, and it was fun. I actually let my uh, 10-year-old watch about the first half hour of it with me, 
And did, did she, she get bored? Totally. No, she was getting super sucked in. She was like begging for me to let her continue watching. And, what happened? Uh, Bedtime? It was bedtime. <laughs> and also, I was a little worried that I didn't know if she could do the shower scene. I don't know if she's ready for it. Uh, Carlos, I love you, but you're wrong on this. This is <laughs> this is a Hitchcock film, and you see all the beautiful little touches. The tension of the officer knocking on her window and following <laughs> her to the used car dealership. The yeah. The peephole scenes, the bird imagery, the hints that you're given, just like Sixth Sense, once you watch it a second time, you see all the hints. The He's a taxidermist and yada, yada, yada. It is, it, it is beautiful. It's got a flaw. I would have edited it out, and who am I to to question Hitchcock, but this film, the scene film has a scene. that's always bothered me. The psychologist explaining the whole thing at the end. Oh, I yeah. loved that. I, I would have had him come out, said a couple of words about mother and then gone straight to the last scene with that beautiful image that you see for a split second of him looking the, the Kubrick stare into the camera with the, with the skull imposed for a split second before they're pulling a car out to find, uh-huh. to find the money, which is what the normal movie would have been, a, would have been about. The right. money inside the newspaper that is just thrown aside as a nothing. It's the ultimate Hitchcock MacGuffin. This movie stands up. Carlos, you're wrong. Let's move on. I think it. I think it's. <laughs> I think it stands up. I just don't think it has. I just. I just don't find it as entertaining just to watch and sit down and and and, mm. I, and I think I, so. It's I, no I, Cabin of the Woods, no doubt. It's definitely not as good <laughs> as Cabin in the Woods, uh, but. Oh, you're a fool. Uh, not as entertaining as Cabin in the Woods. Um, that is, it is, I'm not saying it's not as good as Cabin in the Woods. It's not as entertaining as Cabin in the Woods. I will stand by that. That is a hill that I will die on. Um, I think that. God, if, only, if only Chris Hemsworth could have been in it. If only. Uh, I would have even taken Liam. Uh, but, you know, you were talking about the tension with the cop coming up and what and all that kind of stuff. For me, I just, I know that I'm going to get this incredible, iconic moment with the shower scene that everything that precedes it is like, okay, let's get there. Come on, let's go. Uh, I know it's coming. And it's just because I'm anticipating these really huge moments in the film that everything that precedes them falls flat of the enormity of those moments uh, for me I, 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 yeah I, I hear you i think lee's performance is is pretty strong it i is, love it her. is she's good everything and, about and it and is I'm good totally like I, I i you know this character who's just you know making this rash decision that she's you can tell like from the moment she hits the road she's second guessing herself and yet she can't go back and she's i mean i i think that it's, it's a good it. use of voiceover, David. I talked about voiceover and how I don't like it. This is a great use of voiceover. Her imagination well, or what are the conversations going yeah, on? Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. No, those uh, also it, also uh, it 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 doesn't do something that Frankenstein did, which I talked about in the first half. Is that Frankenstein is just like let's get in there, let's let's make it happen, let's move. Tight, yeah. Tight seventy one, tight seventy one minutes. Uh, That's not tight. 
uh, not tight. It's eleven well, minutes over the requirement for a feature film. That movie could have been fifty minutes. Psycho frankly. is a little breathier. It's a little more. Of course it know. is. The dialogue is. David, it's so good we do these remotely because you'd be having to like pull me down from <laughs> over the table, Carlos, messing up all the equipment, spilling beer all over the table. It, it could have been an appropriately uh, horrific episode for us to have kicked off this month. You two fighting. <laughs> Like oh, I, to yes. the death, I would have grabbed a twelve inch out of a sleeve and gone hee 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 on Carlos <laughs> if we were together right now. Well, anyway. I'm glad it. I'm glad it didn't come to that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, it. it, it you know, I, I, we would be remiss to not mention that in 1960, you don't show people laying on a bed in their underwear or shirtless. Right. This we remit of that opening scene, right. yeah, and her pointy ass, awesome bra, and then <laughs> so pointy, <laughs> oh, so amazing, and then uh, the, uh, they when she flushed the ripped up, uh, oh, yeah, ledger down the toilet. You had yeah. never seen a toilet in American cinema prior to that moment. This movie broke ground. Was it in the the blood? I mean, we we didn't talk about the fact that uh, you know you on the break during the break, Joe made reference to them using Bosco, a chocolate syrup, as the the blood substitute. Remember, this is black and white, so they didn't have to worry about color. It's more the viscosity and the uh, and that it registered as dark. Uh, on the film but you weren't seeing blood draining out of a body in a film you weren't seeing that you know so this did things and that's that's where i say like it's hard to imagine the horror that came after this if you hadn't had this film pushing us into those territories these vulnerable places a bathroom where a person is naked and vulnerable and has nothing on them and where he can't even say the word bathroom when he shows her where the bathroom is we haven't even talked about norman's clear oddness when yeah he's just interacting with people the emergence of the stutter it, it's so good carlos you could come on i didn't say it was a bad movie <laughs> it's a great movie repeated viewings yeah. well it's a party movie at this point no okay, hold on this is not a party movie at all a party movie has to have almost constant visual stimulation, and this movie does not. It has highlights, certainly, but this is no... So it's boring, like I said, then. This is no Wakaliwood, if we're talking party movies. <laughs> I think there's layers to the party movie thing, because well, Wakaliwood exists in a world of its own, just We've in got cinema. Talk, we have to talk about that on a, a Patreon bonus episode. It's going to yeah. happen. Joe's going to berate me on the Patreon bonus episode. Uh, well, it, it goes both directions. Let's be honest. Well, <laughs> I think I think those in the know understand the beauty of this film. Yeah, those do in we, the know do, David. Do we understand? I the said beauty? that it's a great movie. <laughs> just one that doesn't stand up. It just doesn't stand up to repeated viewings. But, but it's yeah. not that it doesn't this, stand up. It's not as entertaining. I'm talking about entertainment okay. value. Uh, okay. Okay. Right. Right, okay. right, right, and again, I, I can understand. Which is why Cabin talking. in the Woods is better. Okay, all right. <laughs> is this black is beautiful good enough to wash uh, the terrible taste of failure out of my mouth? Uh, uh, I'm gonna say this is a this is a good version of it. I mean, I'm I'm enjoying it pretty pretty well. Um, you know, one one of the prevalent criticisms that people have had of the Black is Beautiful. Um, 
project initiative is that it is a little bit more bitter than your typical stout recipe. It has, you know, more of a hoppiness to it that, than your stouts do. I've even heard some people say things like it, it, it comes across almost more like a black IPA than it does uh, a true sort of imperial stout, or at least in a, in a more um, regular sense. To me, it throws me back more to older Russian imperial stouts, which I feel like do hold up a little bit more of a bitterness in their uh, recipes. I think this one has a nice balance to it. I mean, I'm definitely getting that bitterness there, but it's really easy to drink. I've been throwing it back pretty nicely. Um, it's There is the chocolatey roastiness there, too. I'm enjoying it. Fremont has not disappointed me yet. You, what is the beauty of the Black is Beautiful movement? You know, the Black is Beautiful effort here. It's not only shining light on a social issue that another three of us are in complete alignment that needs to be shown a light upon, but it's also if everyone, because um, unlike some of our local guys, they did, and some of the other ones that we've even tasted, because I know that the three of us were, you know, as beer centric as we are, have had at least six, seven, maybe 10 black is beautifuls from all over the country each. It's what does a brewer do with the same recipe when they choose not to use adjuncts in the case of Fremont here? And what do they produce with the same recipe? The idea, Carlos, that it goes from nine to 11% ABV, same recipe, same, all of it, but it's a little bit different everywhere we go. So we're the same, but we're different. This one, very, very, very enjoyable. I, I can't think of one negative thing to say about this non-adjunct Black is Beautiful. It's, it's delicious. And all of the characteristics you were talking about, David, I'm in I am, to use the term again, in alignment with. This, this beer is hitting me exactly where I need to be hit. Uh, yeah, I mean, we have had several Black is Beautiful uh, beers, and just in case the Black is Beautiful episode becomes a Patreon episode, I just think it's worth noting that BNJ's did their coffee version of it that was pretty good. That was, um, it was my favorite of the local Black is Beautiful. BNJ's was? Yeah. Uh, and then and then Rebel Toad did theirs. Shouts out Hector and Natalie, the homies. Um, mm -hmm. And they did a standard version, and they did a chocolate hazelnut version. Both were pretty good. Yeah. Theirs came in a little at the lowest ABV, I think, of all the local ones. Um, and I, and I then, enjoyed their standard very much. Yeah, it was pretty good. And then the the Lorelai one, they did a standard version, and actually but they did oatmeal. They, 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 they that's right that's right things. they theirs was an oatmeal stout so they even tweaked the standard version but i thought that that their chocolate raspberry one was pretty good um yeah or, and i thought uh, i liked the i liked the uh, heft that the oatmeal brought it, yeah. it the body it got a little thicker there and i I, th I think that was a nice uh move never a bad idea to add oats to a stout i'll say it that is a hill I'll die on as well <laughs> um now as far as now yeah so shout out to all the local uh, brewers that did those um, and participated and all that kind of stuff. Um, couldn't let it go unmentioned. But this Fremont one, it's fucking good, man. Like, it's really good. And it's good because it's complex and very balanced all at the same time because it does have, you know, you get some kind of that vanilla caramel kind of sweetness to it. So there's some chocolatiness. It's got a nice body, but also it's like, you know, it's got some bitterness that you would expect from a more traditional Russian imperial stout that we've seen in the past. But all of those things 
neither of any of those flavors, I should say none of any of those flavors, are overpowering the other ones. They all kind of just exist together very well and create this very, you know, to use the same word again, complex kind of experience when you're tasting it is because, you know, they each kind of come in and out on your tongue uh, a little a little bit of this, a little bit of that, as far as the flavor profile goes. Uh, and it's very enjoyable. Um, and I'm glad that we finally got around to doing this one. It's been uh, kind of staring me in the face every time I open my fridge. Because yeah. I'll tell you what, I have not had a bad beer from Fremont. No, and I don't think he will. But, but, but I, I, I honestly, uh, I feel like they, they know their stuff, and, and they're going to keep doing it well. So cheers to Fremont. Cheers to horror. Um, cheers to kicking off this month of horror episodes, which I am super excited for. Um, yeah, we, I, I think yeah. we did a really good job kind of trying to, you know, eight films, four episodes, two films, eight films from the entire horror canon, eliminating every horror movie we've done prior to now, including some of the classics like Halloween. And yeah. So I I think we've done a good job. And David, I, I, I really appreciate your idea here of taking some of the earlier classic things and making sure that we've done them all. Yeah. Well, thank you. And, and I, and I hope our listeners are going to enjoy that. And I'll just say, I don't know about you guys, but I was able to watch these on, I don't even like to pitch, uh, platforms or anything, but you can do a seven day free trial on the Peacock, uh, platform right now the service there by nbc universal and watch these and a lot of other universal horror stuff is on there too if you're if you're hankering do your uh, seven day free trial this month and you can knock out a ton of those and uh, and enjoy commercial free uh horror film entertainment right in the courtesy you know the the comfort of your own home yeah i i, I paid Oh, okay. Well, that, that's that. My recommendation to all of our listeners would be consider doing your free trial this month and and watch some of those classic Universal horror films. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I also I am. I Amazon primed these. Yeah, same. Right on. Right yeah, on. I think it's I think it's good that if we're dedicating an entire month to horror, that we start off with the originators with where all of the references and influence comes from, because. You know, we could really get bogged down in doing movies that are a take on a take on an original, and we're going to end up coming back to all of these, and probably naturally in our conversation, at least a little bit anyway. Um, and so it's good to kind of start off on the right foot, and 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 we'll get into the more modern stuff, and then even some of the mid. We sure will. The middle stuff, the the middle classic stuff. Mm-hmm. Maybe a little obscure stuff. Um, where where are we headed? Stay tuned. Yeah, the only one way to find <laughs> out, and that is to subscribe to the podcast and follow us on social media. Uh, if you're not already doing that, what the fuck are you doing? Um, you can find us on Twitter at Beer Movie Show, Instagram at Beer in the Movie, Facebook.com slash Beer in the Movie TX, Beer in the Movie Podcast.com is where you can find a link to listen to all of our past episodes absolutely free. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, please rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, subscribing helps us out a lot. So if you like what you hear, just go ahead and click that so that you get all of our episodes downloaded into your app automatically uh and you know 
go ahead and leave us a written review. Tell us what you like, what you don't like, what you want to see more of in the future. Um, we are on all of your favorite podcasting apps, so you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Premium, all that kind of stuff, or just Stitcher, not, not Premium, but just Stitcher. Um, and if you didn't catch it from our conversation, we are on Patreon, so you can check that out, patreon.com slash Podcast For $5 a month, you will get a bonus episode to go with every single free episode that comes out every week. And... Uh, that's every week. So that's four bonus episodes a month for and, and, I, and I'm going to commit myself to insanity on those to insanity. Yeah. The, you know, you've, it, it, if you've been I'm listening, gonna give, I'm going to give people their money's worth on those. <laughs> if you've been listening to this podcast for any period of time, you will have heard us reference the second episode. And what we mean by that is, is especially pre COVID uh, and a few times during COVID, we, the quarantine, we have, we will record two episodes at a time because we're all very busy people. We've got stuff going on. And so we'd like to condense two recording sessions into a day so that we have four episodes for the entire month, only have to record twice a month. Um, but by the time we get to that second episode, yeah, that's, that's our four, third and fourth beer. Yeah, that's four high ABV beers in yeah, two and hours. Especially when we're doing the high ABV beers. That's yeah, yeah and, that's four and, beers, and, and, two hours. It gets a little. It gets it gets a little. Uh, yeah, it's when David opens unhinged. up his wallet. Yeah, David opens <laughs> up his wallet and pulls out all kinds of craziness. Uh, yeah. And so and so if you're um, Carlos, Carlos and I are very composed, but David goes crazy. Oh yeah. If you're Absolutely. yeah, if you're uh, if you're a Patreon subscriber, that means every week you get a little tiny taste of that, a little tiny taste of that second episode action, because we That's are on true. our third beer by that point. Um, so, don't fucking sleep on that. Until <laughs> next time, we all go a little mad sometimes. <laughs>